Welcome to episode 57 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment podcast. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're a gaggle of makers and machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie, Chris, how are you guys doing? Hey, man, doing pretty good, guys. It's good to talk to you again. Since I started working like for my own business, you know, it's Memorial Day weekend, or I'm sorry, Labor Day weekend. It's like vacations... They're not quite the same as when you have like a day job, <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't necessarily get observed, but uh, oh, yeah. I'm actually I'm actually on vacation at the moment because my compressor's down, so it's kind of like a, a mechanical failure imposed vacation. So it's kind of so the uh, compressor manufacturer diagnosed it as a failing pressure switch, which I also I think that's it too because I uh, I basically started having problems like a week ago. It was failing to shut off at the top of the cycle and then eventually. St- was failing to kick on at the bottom of the cycle. And uh, I pulled the pressure switch apart, cleaned it with the contact cleaner, and couldn't quite get a file in there, like to clean the contact points, but um, cleaned them as much as I could with the spray. And they actually worked okay for a few days after that. And then it kind of started, I think they're sticking, like the, one of the contacts is sticking. So uh, anyway, it's a fairly, uh, I mean, it's under warranty, so they're shipping me apart. It's just, uh, unfortunately, it's like backordered till December, so they're having to pull one off, a, I guess, a whole you know, compressor, new compressor that's in inventory. So hopefully that's going to be on its way any day now. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, I've kind of been using that time to clean up the shop, get things a little more organized in there. I started looking through my purchase orders, and I realized I've actually run a 1,000 pounds of aluminum through my Neo <laughs> since I got it. Nice. And, yeah, so um, like one of the challenges for me has been material handling and storage. Like it's starting to be a bit of a problem because you know now I've been ordering like a typical aluminum order for me is like three hundred pounds, and it's just me. I don't have a pallet jack. I don't have a forklift, obviously. Um, so I have to, you know, most of the time the freight guys are good about good enough to just you know wheel it up into the garage, and then I have to kind of unload the pallet, break down the pallet and get that metal put away. And um, so I've just kind of been looking at uh, you know, stuff like when you're busy making, running jobs, you just don't kind of have time to stop and think about it. This is kind of a continuation of our shop organization conversation from a couple of episodes ago, but um, that's kind of like my next project is some sort of stock rack setup. Cause I don't want to have a lot of material on hand, but uh, I have, you know, this kind of steady work now that kind of standardized on a certain stock size plate size and uh, I want to at least have pretty good quantity of that on hand. So I'm looking at, uh, I just, I probably am just building something out of, um, you know, some, some basic, some lumber from Home Depot and kind of get those. I just need it to be efficiently stored. <laughs> That's the main thing where it's not taking up a lot of space in the garage and, uh, where it's easy to handle, like to get one out right now. I have them all kind of have a bunch of plates just stacked on top of each other and there's, three different sizes there. So if I need like one on the bottom, I got unstack, you know, hundred pounds of aluminum to get to it. So that's obviously not efficient and probably not healthy for my back. So anyway, so I'm just kind of, um, doodling around and in, infusion with some designs for like a, I don't know, I wouldn't call it a rack. It's just like a, uh, like a toaster style storage. So I want to store the plates kind of on their edge. Um, if anybody thinks that's a bad idea, these are aluminum mix six plates, so like 20 by or 18 by, 12, um, 18 by 18 and I think 24 by 12. So if anyone like says, no, oh, those should 
be stored flat, let me know. Because I don't really know. I'm, I'm assuming it's okay to store them like edge up because they take up a lot less space that way and it's easier just to pick one out when I need it to uh, start a job. So anyway, just kind of designing a little uh, wooden rack to hold those. It should fit under my workbench. So it's, it's almost like free space. I get the space back that it's taking up right now in the garage. So, you know, even though I have downtime, I'm trying to keep it as productive as possible. How about you, Chris? What you been up to? Just, uh, it's been kind of hot here, so I haven't been at the shop as much. But uh, last uh, week, I actually went to the Herco, like a distributor, to check out the Herco machines. And um, they were nice enough to kind of show us their five axis, uh, like a lathe and a couple three axis machines. And one of them was set up for a um, uh, automation. And it was, I think they're called Masco, Machinery Sales Co. Basically, they're a distributor for machine tools, but then they got bought out by Herco, so they ended up being their distributor. But they also sell Kitamura machines and Takumi machines. Um, so we went there. It was really cool. They, they took us around. They're showing us like their uh, automation robot, which I guess they own as well. I, I'm blanking out on the name right now, but um, I guess they're selling these in, in cells. And it was kind of interesting. They had the robot arm outside on a like on a cart, so to speak, that was leveled. And there was a barcode scanner on like one edge of the cart. And there's a barcode scanner in front of the vice. And the arm would scan the, the code in the cart and then it would scan the vice. And it would, that's how it like locates itself every time. And then it would be able to pick up a part from any one of the quadrants that you set in, in the little tray area and then it would load the stock in and then it has a pneumatic vice to close and everything so that was kind of neat and then just watching the herco machine move and cut and stuff and then uh, finally getting a little bit of hands-on on on the uh, interface or their control systems because they use a window-based control and you know from what i've seen it seems great like there wasn't any lag the responsiveness was good um if people are used to like this, the graphical stuff that you get from like Haas and maybe some other ones, it might kind of turn them off because it's this is more functional than form. This is like just straight up like simplistic like letters, like there's just text everywhere, but it's just it's very easy to kind of follow along. I think he spent maybe like 30 seconds telling me like a couple things to do and then everything else is kind of intuitive. Uh, he also spent some time to show me their conventional programming, which is kind of cool too, where we imported the step file and then from there he's able to just rotate the part on the screen with his finger. He can touch off one surface and tell it this is the Z and then, you know, this surface or whatever is the X and then basically rotate the part until the axis is set. And then you can probe that and then you're basically, you can finger touch your way through programming. So you can have roughing, it's got tricodio like adaptive milling or dynamic milling and it's got all that built in already. So it was cool. But for me and for us, we all use Fusion, right? Or other people, we use Mastercam. I don't know how common it is for people in the industry to not have their own cam system before milling something. But if they don't, the Herco's thing was pretty impressive because they were able to just, you know, import even STLs. Uh, they asked me to send them apart and I did not make it easy for them. I sent them an STL <laughs> and I wanted to see if I could crash their system, but it worked. They pulled it in, they, they could scale it and everything and then kind of like cut it from there. So it was kind of neat. That is pretty cool. Um, so on the conversational, there is graphics, right? On the screen? Yes. It sounds like. Yes. Okay. 
it runs off like a Windows graphics card, you know, like a GeForce GTX or something like that. Okay. And it, it has a full like visual graphics GUI and everything. So that part was kind of neat. It's, it's very really easy to use. Yeah, it's like, you know, anything, it's like Pathfinder from Tormac or Haas. Like, it's just yeah. very intuitive. Like, it, it tells you what it is. You click here, you push your hands there, you, you set the Z height of tools and blah, blah, blah. So it's pretty straightforward. Uh, it wasn't complicated. Like, I could probably teach someone that wasn't comfortable with it in just a few minutes of like, okay, this is what you need to do for that. That's what you need to do for that. So. Um, yeah, it was pretty cool. And just being in front of the machines, you know, that, that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, so Windows-based, um, that's also similar to Daytron, it sounds like. How would you compare the experience? Because I know you've been uh, uh, basically shoehorned into teaching people how to run a Daytron at a Fusion <laughs> Academy. Yeah. Uh, well, it, I mean, if, if we had to rate on ease of use, Daytron wins, hands down. Um I don't think anything can beat the how fast you can basically set a coordinate and then you 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 finger draw a line around your part to tell it to probe and everything like nothing beats that like that's still pretty next level in my opinion but the herco thing was it wasn't bad i mean if you're comparing it to let's say a fanic control or a Haas control it's comparable maybe not as easy as a Haas, but definitely easier than a fanic in my opinion um so like it's just I've learned lately because I've been thrown on different machines everywhere and learning these controls. It's like once you get through like the initial skin of the differences, everything else kind of falls into place as far as like how repeatable it is. Like the things that you know already, you know, here's the work offset table. Here's how you set the work comp and here's how you do that. Everything kind of fits the same way. They just have a different way of portraying it. Now, in my opinion, there are definitely ones that are easier. Like Daytron is pretty easy in my opinion. Haas is pretty easy. Um, Fanic to me is a little bit more convoluted and complex in a strange way, but I guess it's just how it is and how people are used to. But um, the Herco one is pretty straightforward. Um, I'd probably rank it third behind the Haas and Daytron being the first. Have, have you watched um, the NYC CNC video where Ed Reese kind of walks through the Fanic control and the Robo Drill? Like just basic uh, setting up a job. It's kind of interesting. Oh, no, I didn't even know they did that. Yeah, I'll check that out. I know, like, a lot of uh, machine tool builders that have Fanuc, like, they put, a, I don't know, like, a front end on top of it that kind of hides some of the, you know, the Fanuc quirkiness, right? In order for me to do something or get to a screen, even if it's just a load of program, I have to hit program, arrow, operator, arrow, arrow, device change, arrow, copy like scroll down the thing copy arrow yep. arrow device change. you know what i mean like it's it's a yeah. very long drawn Reset. out like, finger yeah it's just like dude like just make this like two buttons like why is this so complicated but i think that's just how it's been it's one of those things where like when things have been around for a long time it's very difficult yeah. for them to change because people already know how to do it this way and then to change that would like piss everybody off i think so yeah they just kind of like they just keep it the same way but just you know and that kind of sucks because then you can't innovate because you're, you're pigeonholed to like this old way of doing things and and it's not efficient you know in any way but yeah um yeah so uh, i didn't you know i asked about the herco arrow codes and stuff and i, I said look are they easier to understand than a fanic and they said yes like it's pretty straightforward it's like okay i'll take your word for it but i, I didn't actually see an arrow code or anything okay. like that but you know my my biggest traumatic experience with the fanic was like i couldn't get this file to load and i was it was telling me something about like this weird error like spindle error or something it was something weird 
and I spent 40 minutes trying to figure out, and all it was was the name was too long. <laughs> the file name was too long. I'm like, what the hell, dude? Like, are you serious? Like, oh, I was so embarrassed at work. Like, I was just, it felt like such a noob, you know what I mean? Like, not, not knowing that. So it was one of those, one of those pains. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, so, so anyway, so basically the Hercos, they, they look like great machines. Um, they all, I didn't also didn't know that Herco bought Takumi machines was another Japanese manufacturer. And I guess I actually saw some of the architecture from a Takumi machine on the new Hercos. So it seems like they're integrating like intellectual properties from both companies, which is kind of cool. The machine that caught my eye though, was the Kitamura. They had like a five axis machine that almost like literally reminded me of the Yazda at my previous job. It was just like a baby Yazda and it had everything like, like chilled spindle. It's got temperature compensation, chilled bearings, like on the linear, like everything. It was just like packed to the brim with features. It was just like a baby current almost in, in that sense, you know, but much smaller, uh, but also much cheaper. Like I, he said it was only like 350 K, um, versus, you know, something like the current, which is way more expensive than that. So, I, I never even had an eye on a Kitamura machine. Have you guys ever, has that ever popped on your radar? I've heard of them, but I've never like looked into them. Yeah, I've looked at their medical machine, medical five axis. I can't remember the name of it, but um has the word medical in it. <laughs> and it's probably like just a, like an optioned out version of one of their base five axis machines, I'm guessing. It's just loaded right with eye accuracy stuff. But They um, had that one too. That one yeah. was called the uh, the Med Center. It's yeah, like medicine. a medical, but it's yeah. it's almost like you could fit that in a garage for sure. It was really tiny. It, yep. And um, this one was like maybe double that size. I think it was oh, called okay. the mice, the my center is what they call it. But it okay. was is much bigger and it was uh, it was pretty impressive. I mean, the things that he was telling me that was on the machine. So uh, I was I was impressed. Like, I, yeah, I had I think, no idea. I mean, if you can keep you know travel small on those five axis machines, you can get some pretty high accuracy machines um, in that price range. Like 250 to 400. I think the Kuma also built some really nice uh, small five axis. Or, or I mean, small, small is in small work envelope. The machines are pretty heavy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I still, I don't think they'd work. I don't know if they'd work in a garage. I'm not sure what the weight is, but but physical footprint, they look like they'd fit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was it was tiny, man. It was uh, yeah. it was surprising. Um, but yeah, I had a much smaller envelope. I I, I would consider that more like the Haas CM1 kind of envelope. It's kind of like one small trunnion type thing. Really yeah. tiny parts will fit on there, no problem. Yeah. Um, and then they they had like a Swiss lathe as well. Uh, but it was, I think it was like a Chinese, I think it was like oh. Hua something. It was like a Chinese or Taiwanese gotcha. company actually. Gotcha. Um, so he, he ran a part and it looked great. I mean, I don't didn't I don't know anything about Swiss machines, so I, I couldn't say, but um, it was kind of neat just to be able to see that. So that was basically the Herco tour. Um, we were, we got invited there because we were interested in their live tool lathes. Um, or we were thinking about getting a live tool lathe for the shop and everything because we have a lot of parts that we could run and we would need a bar feeder to run it overnight. So they kind of popped up. So that's why we were like talking to the sales guy and kind of get quotes and things like that. But that's how that all that happened. Yeah. Um, you guys already have a Dusan live tool lathe there, right? Uh, so that's at the day job. We have a Doosan Live Tool Lathe, the Lynx 2100. Oh, this is for the, uh, the UMC. This is for a UMC shop. Our, gotcha. Um, you know, yeah, we're thinking yeah. of expanding to a lathe because we do have a lot okay. of stuff on there. Okay, um, that makes more sense. So we're, we're, just, we're just window shopping right now, trying to figure out which machine is going to work best for us. Yeah. Um, 
yeah. So, so that was the Herco tour. And then this last week, um, I'm so far ahead on like water jet programming that that guy has worked for like the next four weeks. So basically <laughs> I got, I got free reign to like play on the new machines. So I spent almost like two days on the five axis, the DVF uh, 5,000, just like, you know, getting accustomed to it with the palette changer, um, testing out the palette changer and okay, if I have palette one, two and four scheduled, and then something hot comes in, like just making sure I understand, like, okay, how do I pause this? Like, I want to hold those. I'm going to add palette number five as the top priority, how to load that in. If there's a power outage or, or air thing breaks, I can manually drive everything out there. And then just kind of getting more time to spend with the Fanuc control because the only time that I've been able to spend on the Fanuc is on the on the lathe, but it's uh, we have an operator because I'm so busy jumping between the water jet and that. I don't get to, like, proof my own programs out. So it's very minimal time and it's just kind of like just enough to get by, but not really super comfortable with it. And I got to spend like two days on the five axis. I got to spend a day on the fourth axis horizontal and then, uh, you know, a few more days on the lathe and they, we all, they all run the same control basically. So it was just reinforce, reinforcing my learning. And I, it was amazing. I spent the whole week basically just playing around with machines and getting trained, uh, by the Ellison tech guy. So that, that was super cool. Um, and yeah, I feel pretty good about it now. Like as far as comfortability, I feel as comfortable as I am on the Haas. So I was super ecstatic about that. Um, before it was kind of like, I'm not hundred percent sure, you know, how to do this or that. But now it's like, now that I got to sit there uninterrupted with no job and just got to play around, it was pretty cool. Um, and then I loaded one of my old pocket and C programs in there and just downloaded the uh, do saw and post and then just posted it out and just raised the Z up a little bit and I ran it and it was amazing. And <laughs> that's, that's like the one thing I love about fusion is that at any given moment I can go on their website and grab a post and I'm done. The master cam licenses that we have, it's like a nightmare. I have to go through this distributor. I have to email them. I have to get approvals. I have to get a quote. It's like, Oh my God. Like, and then to get like the machine profile for a simulation. Cause we also bought Camplete. Just like all this stuff that we have to do to get there. And then in Fusion, I did it in like 15 seconds and I was done. And yeah. then I was already running the program on there and they're like, how did you get this out? I was like, oh, I just posted from Fusion and this is an old program from Pocket and C. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, it has simultaneous five axis movement. Watch. And then everyone was gathered around. We're just watching it like do all the simultaneous moves. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I'm like, yeah. You know, this is, I'm like, this is the future. Like, let's get away from Mastercam. And everyone laughed at me and I said, okay. Did you tell me you mean you don't do this at home? You don't run five axis <laughs> stuff at home like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that, that's been cool, man. It's been a fun week for me, um, minus the heat. The heat's killer, but uh, other than that, everything uh, everything's pretty good. What about you, Winston? Uh, heat is also killing me. Um, I wanted to ask, actually, both of you guys, um, but you especially, Chris, because you've been running new machines. Um, I might be creating toolpads for a production part um, for the Nomad. Uh, that'll run on a big boy uh, VMC. So uh, I wanted to ask you guys, how long does it take for you guys to get over the uh, the pucker factor when you hit cycle start on a brand new program for the first time? <laughs> you, you go first, Eddie. When I'm proofing code, I've got, you know, basically feed overrides, rapid overrides, turn down, right? I'm watching it. Um, I actually don't worry about it too much. Although, that's you know, some of that's reinforced because I haven't had a problem yet. As soon as I have a problem, like my confidence will go out the window. Because even with those turned down on, on my machine, I can still get in trouble really fast. 
And I don't like to turn the, you know, the actual cutting feed rate down too much because then it just ruins the cut, right, and ruins the tool. So uh, I'm usually like letting it do that op and then catching it kind of when it's getting ready to do a repositioning move um, just so I can kind of keep an eye on it. But uh, I can tell you like for production programming, um, it's a different set of factors, right, versus like, like you want probably, I mean, you're optimizing more probably for tool life and process reliability, right? So you probably won't be going 10 tenths, you know, unless you really just have to crank out you don't have enough capacity, right? And, and it's critical that you get the most out of the machine. You probably would turn it down a little bit once you get past the proofing and just try to get a reliable, repeatable process, right? That can run part after part after part. Yeah, it's hard to say. It's like, and it depends on, like when I'm running really small tools and it's more of a pain, right? I, even when it's running proven code, I have to keep an eye on it because you know, the tool can break, right? It, it ultimately will break uh, sub one millimeter tools on bigger jobs, like bigger plate jobs, they're gonna wear out or get packed with chips or whatever. But, um, but for the most part, like once I've run it a few times, um, and I, if it's like a pattern thing, I just let it go across the plate, keep an eye on it. Like when I did the sewing guides, you know, I ended up doing, I can't remember how many, I wanna say it was like 12 or 14 plates worth of parts. And by the time I was getting like, to the ninth and tenth plate, I was just watching it with the remote camera. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The camera would run so many times, it's like I kind of trusted it and, it and it didn't let me down. So um, I could basically just check on it every once in a while with the camera. I had tool, tool break detection turned on. Actually, I didn't break any, eh, I did break one tool, um, but that was during proofing. Too, too aggressive of a feed rate with a small tool, but uh, yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. You have built up experience, right? You've got a little uh, library or spreadsheet of known speeds and feeds, right? So like probably 80, 90% of the tool paths you make probably aren't that scary because like, you've got the fundamentals, you know, to helix in at a certain angle to ramp in whatever um, combined with good speeds and feeds. It's probably pretty, uh, pretty pedestrian to just run that. Um, is there something new in each job that you do that you have to proof out for the first time or, or something new you're discovering? Yeah. I mean, anytime I change cam, like even on a production job, like if I'm just optimizing something after, you know, 10 runs, I want, I see an opportunity to make something go a little faster, um, without compromising, right. The reliability, then I will reproof that. Right. I, I never let it run. I never let like virgin cam run without keeping a really tight eye on it. But yeah, for the most part, you know, with the Daytron, it's uh, speeds and feeds are pretty well defined for their set of tools. As long as I'm sticking with those, it's pretty, I can get in the ballpark very easily. I usually turn their, like their speeds and feeds are almost a little too aggressive for what I want to do most of the time. So I usually run them at like 80%, uh, either reduce depth of cut or um, a lot of times I'm actually turning the RPM down. I try to stay below 36 or 36K RPM and less uh, just for increase spindle life. I rarely run up at 40K. Um, but it's like if they have a 38K recipe for, I wanna say like the six millimeter tool, I'll run it at 36, keep the same feet per tooth and back off the depth of the cut a little bit and keeps my spindle load right where I want it. Um, doesn't seem any slower. <laughs> it still seems like scary fast when you watch it. I'm trying, you know, once you run the cam, 
you're not changing the cam and your work holding solid and repeatable, um, then it's really just those weird variables that'll, that'll mess you up, right? Like a broken tool or maybe, you know, chip clearing gets in the way somehow, like didn't clear that. That's still kind of a random process, right? So you could end up with something that works, you know, 10 times and 11 times might ran into some chips packed in a hole or something and mess everything up. But uh, other than that, you know, it should be pretty predictable, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I would expect so, but that's the part that I'm not going to get to experience because, I mean, we have a machinist. He's going to be the one who's going to be hitting cycle start most of the time, but yeah. I'm the one that has to prove out the code. That where the programmer and the, and the guy running the machine are t two different people, that's a whole, that is scarier, right? Yeah, I think <laughs> so. for I think for me, like, I got to know the operators really well and I know their tendencies. So like, I'll make sure to address for each operator. Like if I feel like, okay, this guy sometimes overlooks this thing or sometimes, you know, this person doesn't do this or maybe she doesn't notice that, then I'll kind of like tailor my instruction to that person specifically. Cause usually I'll be in front of the machine. And once I proof it out, honestly, after I proof out the program once, I'll just hundred percent everything and walk away because I have total confidence that I didn't change anything and there's no reason why the machine would crash after me running the same program. Now, if I take that file out or that USB stick out and I'm uploading a new one, I will reproof it out, but it depends on what I did on the cam side. Like if I just changed one toolpath and I locked everything else, I know nothing changed. I'll just proof that one out and I'll move my Z like two inches in the air take a look at it, just air cut it. Okay, this looks good, drop it back down. And then I have confidence of running it because I do a lot of simulation checking because, you know, to me, that's just, that's like your ultimate, like security is making sure that if the computer is showing you something and it looks good there, chances are it's going to look okay there. And there's been a lot of times, like, let's say I crashed or I did something, I'd go back and like, oh, I missed that in the simulation. I wasn't paying attention to this. Next time I will. So yeah. for like a for like a brand new program, I will, I will single block through certain sections. But honestly, I'm more aware, I'm more scared of Z crashes, right? That's usually where the issues are. Like once the Z helicals in and starts doing the adaptive stuff or whatever, it's fine. Like it's it's just that beginning moment as there's yeah. a, there's a pucker factor. But I've gotten really good at learning from how my operators how they look at it, and most of them don't even look at this, what's in front of them. They just they're just staring at matrix code. Like they're just looking at G code all day. Yeah. They just stare at the code and they can tell like, hey, why is it doing this? I had one guy said, hey. You're, you're doing conventional. And I'm like, how did you tell him? He's like, oh, this is shouldn't be going this way. It should be positive. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't even think that makes total sense, but I didn't even think to look at it that way. So I learned a lot from them and like learning how they read code that isn't their program. Because you imagine it's scary for us. It's just as scary for them. So like it's it was like a, a really unique experience for me. It also made me a better machinist because now I know what types of things I should be doing in programming to help their lives. And then they also know like how to teach me to be better at like that. So I learned reading, I basically just stare at G code. And like, once I get to a section where I know like, okay, this might be a little dicey, I'll single block, look at it. Where, where is it looking? You know, okay, Z is going to go down minus one. Where am I at right now? That's fine. I'm, I'm clear and I'll just run it because I know it's good. And that I'm usually just afraid of that. But once I get that, like I'm set. Like once I run through that whole thing and I'm like, okay, I hand it off. I just turn everything hundred, like run this, like, and I walk away. I'm not worried because I know that I didn't 
alter anything. Right? I didn't change anything. You know, I didn't accidentally do something that would cause it to crash after that. So I have total confidence in the machine. Um, but I do double check, triple check. Like I, before I like pass it on, I, I, I double check everything and I make sure I do it right. I check the simulation. I'm constantly kind of doubting myself to make sure that I, that I catch this and I miss that before I hand it because, uh, I don't, you know, obviously nobody wants the machine to crash. So, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So that's kind of like my process of doing it and how I get through it. Now on the newer machines that we bought, you'd best believe I'm going to single block most of that just because <laughs> I'm scared because I don't want to be the first one to crash the five axis. So I'm going to take it real slow, but on the three axis or the lathe, I've gotten decently comfortable with it. So I have my process pretty solid and so far everything's been good. And you know, I've probably run at least maybe 30, 40 jobs already. So it's given me a, uh, a good confidence booster that my process is reliable. Yeah, I think like one factor that I probably um, I'm not watching close enough is you got to be careful about updates in Fusion. Like those can bite you too, um, especially if the post gets updated or and basically you repost the code, right? Um, so I, I know nothing's ever happened to me, but I know there was like a there was actually a nasty little bug. I don't think it was Autodesk's fault. <laughs> I don't want to say whose fault it was, but um, there was a issue in the next Datron next post uh, with metric to English conversion, uh, just a little you know math error, and uh, it only like it only came up in a certain circumstance. I think it was either drilling op or something. But um, if you ran into it, you got that fun little Z plunge that you didn't expect, right? So uh, you know, basically, it's not something you would normally think of. Like if your code was working, all of a sudden it starts behaving odd. That's something to always remember, right? I think like in bigger production shops, like they're much more controlled about how they take on like updates to their cam software. Um, it's a little difficult with Fusion, right? Cause you kind of, when they update, you're pretty much going to get it automatically unless you decline to update and eventually you're going to get it whether you want it or not. So. Yeah. Um, I guess for us, we, we sequence the code to that job and the, and the machine setup sheet. So, that setup sheet has the code that's attached to the program that's been proved, and that's the only one that we're allowed to run. If I post a brand new one, then it, it there's a new code attached to that program, which won't match the setup sheet anymore, yeah, and then it needs to be proofed out. So like when we finish a job and it's done, that program goes in there, the master cam file and the setup sheet are matched and they're proven. That's it. We know we never change that ever again. If we want to touch something, everything gets updated and reproved. Like yeah. we don't we don't mess with that. Yeah, yeah. if you're running something like Camplete, you know, you're I think your level of protection is even that much higher, right? You've got many yeah. places to catch it before the actual carbide's plunging into into material. Right. So. Right. Yeah. And honestly like most of the operators are they're spot on, man. They they catch they catch a lot of the things that not I no crashes for me, but definitely things that I could do better. And they taught me quite a bit, so I'm really grateful yeah. to have them. Yeah. I don't know if we answered your question, Winston. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I um, mean, it's just it's given me a lot to consider, um, I, Eddie. I think I've noticed a couple things with like pattern toolpaths in Fusion, like with rest machining, and sometimes um, if you post out like the second half of the code. Um, or you disable like the first instance of the pattern, uh, rust machining kind of breaks. Um, so like for the parts that I'll be doing, um, there's going to be multiples of these on a single sheet. And uh, I've got to probably just triple check the simulations, I guess, in Fusion. I don't have access to Camp Lead or anything, so it's just going to be my eyeball 
on the uh, fusion simulation and just checking for odd gouges or anything in the, uh, yeah. the stock. But I don't know. It's a, I, I think it's something like I'm just going to have to take the plunge and uh, get over my fear. Yeah, that's interesting you bring that up. I actually was kind of struggling with that exact issue last week with uh, like that plate work I had is basically um, all the cams like on one feature and then it gets patterned across the whole plate. And because I was, it was a long running op or a couple of them with the small tools. So I basically, I didn't want to run it all, like just do one pattern and do the whole thing. Cause it'd been like 20, 30 hours of machining without a break. Um, I wanted to spread it across a few days. So I basically programmed like every, it was, imagine it's like a row, it's like a row and column type setup. So I, like every third column, I programmed a pattern. So I just basically do three columns at once and that would be it, right? Then maybe the next day I do the next three columns or that afternoon or whatever. In theory, that code, the tool pass should have been exactly the same, um, but they weren't. It's like, there's actually, you know, I, I was having to click on different geometry, right? I mean, the same geometry, but on like the third column, um, and it didn't generate the exact same toolpath on, especially on the rest stops. So I actually noticed some difference and affected the surface finish on these areas like some were perfect and some weren't and i went back and looked and it was actually the cam toolpath was different everything like it was set up exactly the same clicked on the same geometry um but it didn't generate the same toolpath so it's kind of weird it's kind of stochastic on that so that's kind of a challenge you know the other thing i just thought of uh do you ever run your posted code through a secondary program like a reader or a visualizer like i think there's one online called nc viewer but we use one at work and i'm blanking the name of the software but basically we once we post it we put it in there and we we watch the visual like kind of like the milling or whatever it is you're doing basically yeah, back plot yeah. and it helps us catch like any consequence or possible mistakes yeah. that we might have done and since it's just like a, another program it takes away like the trust a little bit and, and lets it verify everything's going to be okay yeah i probably should do more of that with the nc viewer that's um I can't remember who um xander xander sorry yeah xander right. from autodesk uh, that's his i think he's i've been it's been like two years since i used that and i know it's like he's been investing or he's invested quite a bit more in making that code even better since the last time I used it. So I heard someone else talking about it recently, so it's really nice. So, and it's super it's easy just really use. convenient. Yeah, yeah, it's convenient. It's online, you know, like, but we have one at work and I can't remember the name, but so they, they make us use that one. But if I didn't, I just use that the NC viewer. So, yeah, it's not quite the same as full machine simulation. Like I would love to have that, <laughs> especially, uh, like with the fourth axis here. Um, I'm assuming, you know, yeah. I think someday fusion will get there or get closer. But the, at least at the very least, you're going to, if something's going to go wrong, you're going to see something weird. You're going to oh, yeah. see one toolpath go down below everything else and yeah. it's going to stick out. And that's you're like, hey, what, what's going on here? Like, <laughs> you'll be able to catch it pretty easily. So yeah. it's just like it, having all these like sequential backups or like basically foolproofing your, your programming because you're human, right? And like yeah. if you're under pressure or you're tired or things are happening, you may forget something depending on the time of day. So if I have a really long job that I have to spend like eight hours programming, sometimes I'll just like check it, but different times of the day or, you know, like, so my brain is just like, I'm making sure that I'm not just overlooking one simple mistake here or there. Yeah. And then sometimes I catch something, sometimes I don't. And then, you know, I'll catch it later on in the process. Yeah. Hey, Winston. So one thing I'd suggest, I don't know if the, the 
machine tools you're using kind of keep track of uh, like tool life and runtime on the tool? Uh, I don't know. Oh, okay. Um, I say, yeah, if you start doing like production work, where especially if it's the same part over and over and over, you can you can start to get really good data on like I'm just throwing an example out there. Like, say you're using the a Datron three millimeter single flute, like you could probably track exactly how long that lasts. Like after maybe two or three tools have worn out or broken or whatever, the same one, you'll, you'll get pretty good data on like just how many, like in the Datron, it tracks how many meters and how many hours it's run that tool. And when I was running that, uh, some of these longer jobs that were the same work over and over, it's like I was starting to get on two tools that were out, I got good data. Um, and actually kind of verified it on another job when I got you know pretty close to that same mileage on the tool I could start seeing you know spindle load starting to go up you know there was the hints there that it was worn and now yeah, I can that, kind of predict that so. depends on uh, good communication with the machinist though um, I don't know how often they'll just tell me like hey you should uh, uh, like we just broke this tool I think it's a tool life thing not your G code um, so I'd have to work out a dialogue, a better dialogue with our machinist to, to just be like, hey, let me know if things start sounding funny. Um, there was a time when uh, Rob and I were just walking through the shop and he, he pauses and he perks up like a dog that's just heard like a whistle like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> far in the distance. And he just turned to our machinist. He was like, check tool number three in the, the carousel. Um, and it turns out that that tool had just, uh, one of the three flutes had just exploded. Yeah, wow. Um, so like he heard just a little bit of screeching as we were cutting and the surface finish on the parts weren't that great. Um, so yeah, I think on a single flute, like if you lose one flute, it's gone. But, mm-hmm. um, for other tools, um, you're counting on the machinist being attentive. And I think Chris, the, the guys in your shop, it sounds like they would be super like finely attuned to small differences in uh, cutting and be able to pick up on that. But um, for me, just huddled away in my office, away from all the machining, barely able to hear anything. Um, I'm counting on someone else's eyes and ears to tell me that something is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. the other thing is like, I, I also bring it up to them. It, like sometimes I'll program something like, I'm, I know this will work, but I'm not exactly sure like on finish or whatever on the setup sheet or I'll put a note like, hey, when you run tool seven and you're looking at this operation, take a take a gander at what's going on. Tell me how it sounds. Tell me how the, and I'll tell them report back to me when this runs or, hey, can you come get me when this tool's running? And I'm, so I'm there watching it and listening with them. And then I, this is how I develop that report because they, they start to notice the things that I'm worried about. And then uh, in the future, it's like I don't even need to tell them. They just know like, hey. I know this is something you look for. This happened. I'm like, okay, cool. Let me do this to make it better. So it's like you, you're teaching each other how to like learn from to run something. It's like a symbiotic relationship type thing. But I will specifically tell them, hey, I'm worried about this one. I know this will be fine, but I'm worried, for example, like we ran this part on some weird plastic called the Vespol and it deforms like crazy. And it was when it was super hot in the shop and it was like literally deforming and we had 0% clamping pressure and it was still like messing up and everything. So I was really concerned about, we had, and for some reason we had to hold a 10th on overall, uh, I'm sorry, a thou on the overall diameter and it was giving us a lot of problems. So I told him, hey, when you run tool seven, as soon as it's done, come get me or come get me before you run it. Cause I'm looking for these things and, and let me know, report back to me. And that he did that. And it's just kind of like going back and forth and then you kind of fine tune together until you get it. And then by you doing that, you're also teaching that person like, Hey, 
in the future, Winston likes me to pay attention to these things, right? For example, where could you get efficiency on tool life or uh, process reliability or whatever, like improving, you know, toolpath times and things like that. So you're kind of training them to become better at what they're doing and also helping making your life easier because they can report back to you in detail what you would like to see, you know, if you're busy doing something else. Yeah. Yeah. I've been mean to ask both you guys, you guys had any time to do any work on the hobby machines lately? Uh, not for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, kind of yes and no. Like I've been, doing nomad stuff and i've been testing a couple speeds and feeds but um by and large like i haven't been able to like have fun and do my own work on the machines it's really just out of necessity i'll use it when i have time on the things i have to do yeah Uh, so um oh actually i wanted to circle back um for the um the simulation stuff i just wanted to uh give a, a round of applause to pocket nc because their simulator for the their five axis stuff it's like i don't think anyone else at sort of the hobby level or prosumer level has ever put that much work into making such a, a well put together uh simulator yeah it's basically yeah, a full it's, machine simulation it's uh, it's amazing yeah total confidence in it yeah, yeah it's super good and that has saved my bacon on some <laughs> some silly things i programmed so uh yeah it's, well, I, it's I, also saved time, right? Like, you know, I, I, I'm, we all of us have made parts that are too big for that thing, right? Or we we pushed the limit. It's the simulator has helped a lot because it'll tell me if I'm going to error out because the y-axis travels out and I don't need to go through the whole... Basically, it saves me like five or five minutes or so each time. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, I don't know, it's, it's great. It's actually amazing. And I'm surprised that it's free and it's part of everything. And it's just, it's cool that they do it like that. So yeah, anybody who buys a machine cool. has that. I was asking because I'm actually going to be... I think you guys know I have the Blondie Hacks part. It's kind of landed in my lap a couple of months ago. I haven't had much time to do it, uh, do anything with it, but I'm uh, starting to, to kind of come together with some ideas. So I actually want to do like um, some parts on the V250, Pocket NC, and on the Bantam and on the Neo um, for my contribution to that before I send it on. So just started kind of thinking about where I was going to Originally, I was going to do uh, uh, Modvice because the... Saunders had it last, and they actually made a, a tooling plate for it. Just kind of, it's like super miniature. It's like I think I can't remember the thread size. It's ridiculously small imperial threads, like 440 or something like that. But um, I'm like, that's going to be too much work. I'm not going to have that much time. So <laughs> uh, I'm trying to come up with something else to add on to it. But uh, I did decide, you know, I'm going to do a little bit of work on each of the machines. And, that I have here and kind of that's going to be my contribution. I thought it'd be kind of fun. So it's neat because it'll get me using the, the inside machines uh, that I haven't done in a while. So looking forward to, to uh, getting back in the swing of the hopping machines for a while. If I had been ready, this would have been the perfect week since, (laughs) since my (laughs) garage shop is down, but uh, yeah, I wasn't quite ready on the, on the fusion side yet. Yeah, being ready for to, to pivot is a really tough thing. Like, I knew we had a really hot weekend coming up, so I was going to be like, all right, on Saturday, I'm going to get all my cam together, and then I'll just go into the uh, the Carbide 3D shop on, like, today, Sunday, and just uh, knock out a bunch of parts. And uh, even though I saw that coming, I was not prepared for it at all. 
So, uh, yeah, it's it's tough to plan ahead. Yeah, I'll be ready soon. So um, even if I don't have time to run it, I'll have I'll have it ready to run when I do find some time. So um, and I'll keep my I keep warming up the spindle <laughs> on the machine and not like so I don't have to go through the hour long warm up. So I kind of <laughs> uh, like every couple of days I run it through the the short warm up, but. Uh, and now I just realized that once I get the air compressor going, I get to wait through an hour-long warm-up on the Neo. <laughs> so it's been more than 60 hours since that's been on. So. But, uh, yeah, anyway. So I'm kind of actually looking forward to it. I, um, I got to do something something that's like would only work on five axes, too. So I'm not tempted to go run it on the Neo. Can you talk about what that thing is for the block? Like, what is it that you guys are all making to put together? No idea. So, okay. <laughs> I mean, it, actually, or is I it don't... just like a? Is it just like a relay thing where here, here, here's you add part... made, You you make whatever you want. Yeah, and it doesn't have to make sense. Like if you listen to the Blondie hacks uh, when she kicked off the the initial um, project, like okay. it, like it, I think it started to be something, and now it's not that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think mine's gonna like clear up the mystery at all <laughs> so um i have one idea that kind of it's kind of uh correct for where it was originally going i think it looked like it was originally going to be some sort of metrology like a uh, maybe an indicator stand or something <laughs> it doesn't look like that anymore so it's almost like there's two separate parts kind of going on in there that don't have anything to do with each other and i can contribute to either one or maybe both so we'll see it's still fun. Okay. Yeah, and there's yeah, like yeah, no, it sounds fun. It's funny because like some of the parts, like there's a pretty large steel plate in there um, that looks like it was going to be like the base for something, and it's like so the whole package is is pretty heavy. I'd say I don't know maybe 30, 40 pounds. Um, you know, it gets shipped around in a wooden crate inside the box. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah, just because of the mass, quite a bit of mass. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I won't be doing any steel. I'll probably do aluminum and brass and maybe a copper piece. So we'll see. That's pretty much it. So I got, like, once I get my, uh, I should be back in business on Wednesday because I, I didn't mention it at the beginning, but um, I went ahead and moved my, like, I had already had plans uh, for next year to go buy a second compressor. Just it's such a critical piece of shop gear, right? You can't be without it when it's down. Um, I have some spare parts. I didn't have the right spare part <laughs> for this one, but um really just makes more sense to have a second compressor on standby and I'll just kind of have to cycle through them probably once a month to make sure they both stay lubricated. But that should be here Tuesday. So um, either the spare part or the actual second compressor will be here uh, sometime early next week and I should be back up and running. And I've got, uh, I think I've got some work pending as soon as that's back up, kind of the next job I gotta get started on. Is this affecting your uh, your production schedule at all, or have you um, sort of worked that out with so the client? It actually, um, it would have been great, except there's uh, some rework needed on the last mold I did. So that would have been happening like right now uh, if I had the shop up and running. I think the next work they have coming for me is would have been next week. Still kind of waiting on some sign-offs on there for the design, but. Um, Actually, you know, it's starting to be enough work and, and, you know, talking with the client, kind of seeing where their growth is going in the future. Um, I actually decided to bring a subcontractor in to have, you know, I kind of already wanted to do that just to have somebody to, like, if I have something like what happened this week, right, if my shop's down, I don't want to impact the client too much, right? Whoever that client happens to be at any given time. 
So I wanted to have like at least one shop kind of set up to take over, you know, work I couldn't take or had to defer or whatever. Um, kind of reciprocal, right? It'll, it'll, I'll be able to take on some of their stuff if they're in a position where they, you know, even vacation, right? If I want to take a week off, <laughs> go on vacation or something, it's like I need some way to where that wouldn't necessarily disrupt my client's business. So, um, so actually, yeah, so somebody else with the day drawn, uh, so they can do, you know, the work will look like mine as far as uh, what the machine can do and worked with the client to kind of get the, the subcontractor shop vetted. So they're happy with their work. It's still kind of ongoing, but uh, by next week that should be done. And then oh, we'll kind of have that in place, right? For when I need it or when they need it. So I thought it was, I was pretty happy about that. That kind of takes some of the stress off. So. I don't know if that makes sense, right? Like, yeah, no, that's yeah, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. A really useful thing, honestly. Yeah. yeah, and I'm not like I'm still not at the point where I would run my machine seven by twenty four lights out um, at the house, mainly because it's at the house. If something did go wrong, you know, worst case scenario, there's ethanol in there, there's flammable liquids. Like I really don't want to run that way. Nobody's conscious and watching it, even remotely. Um, this subcontractor guy is. Uh, He's already in, he's comfortable running his machine set by twenty four, so um, some of the longer running work that just doesn't make sense for my machine might actually you know I think it's gonna work out pretty good. I can send him the stuff that's just really needs to run without stopping <laughs> until it's done uh, to get it delivered on time. So um, yeah, I, I basically run mine no more than twelve hours a day, and you know, I don't run it when I'm sleeping. So. I don't know if that'll change down the road. Maybe if I put a fire suppression system in or something, but right now it's like, I haven't had the need to. That's the other thing. It's like most of the work is, I can deliver it on time easily enough. It's just running day shift. I mean, I think you should be fine as long as you're not running titanium over 300 SFM dry. Yeah, it's just, well, I mean, the other issue for me is um, it's really the noise at night. So oh, okay. yeah, my neighbor's pretty close. You know, everything's been fine so far. Like it's, you can't really hear much going on outside of the garage. Like when I go walk around the house, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> we did, it's kind of funny. We did, we had the central AC replaced uh, about a month ago and the new unit's much quieter. So actually I can hear a little more than I used to be able to hear before. It used to kind of do a good job of masking out the shop noise, but like I can hear uh... the compressor. I would think like overnight you would definitely notice it. And they're like, okay. they have two bedrooms there, right? Where they would potentially hear that. So that's the main main okay. reason I'm not doing anything overnight. Um, not just the safety thing, but courtesy, right? So, yeah. yeah. If we move out further out in the country, then I might reconsider, especially if the shop was detached from the house. You know, if, you know worst comes to worst, the shop burns down but didn't kill anybody, I'd be tempted. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So anyway. At that point, though, wouldn't the uh, that second spindle idea be a little more useful? What do you mean? Uh, I, I thought you had uh, dreams of obtaining a second uh, day job. Oh, yeah, I do. But I mean, that would be like, even now, that would be helpful for me, like, even if I wasn't running overnight, just because I got either two jobs running concurrently or um, like a longer running job on one and the prototyping stuff that kind of comes in here on times, right? It's not predictable. Um, I'd always have a machine ready potentially to do that. So I'd have to have like pretty steady work for one of the machines to really justify that. Like you don't almost have to be dedicated to it. Um, potentially could get there next year, 
so we'll see. It's too bad you can't uh, employ a, a smaller desktop machine in the meantime or something. Well, that might happen. You know, with, I don't know where Bakkenis the... is going with their pro machine. That might actually turn out to be like a commercially viable machine for me um, mm. and let, let me do five axes. But, you know, I was thinking on the second Spindle Neo or having a Neo here as a second machine actually be like a lot less expensive than the first one because I would not configure it the same. I basically just have that one configured for three axis vacuum, like pretty much dedicated to vacuum work holding. Um, but that, you know, basically that setup, I think I could share the vacuum pump, um, basically just be using it because typically I'd probably be using vacuum on one and fourth axis on the other. Uh, wouldn't be running them necessarily back and concurrently, but even if I had to, I think it would support both concurrently. Because you know, as long as the leak rates low on both jobs. Yeah, if you're doing like mold work like you're doing now, which yeah, is just large never, plates and you're not cutting through, that's probably exactly. fine. Exactly, and it's fully covering the vacuum table. It's like that's ideal work for vacuum. It's perfect. Um, yeah, so basically, I, I get like uh, I get the same vacuum I get if everything was closed. You know what I'm saying? Like all the valves were closed. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't notice much difference, especially if I tape up. Like there's one little part where the vacuum table is just a little bit bigger than the plate, and if I put like tape over that, it's perfect. It's like it's it's the optimum, like theoretically maximum vacuum you can get off my pump. So uh, I think you know a second machine set up the same way would it, that wouldn't change. I don't think. Um, yeah, so I, I was thinking, you know, if I do add a second machine, it's not going to be the same price tag I had in my head initially. It's actually much cheaper because the configuration would be much simpler, much closer to base config. Um, I, yeah. I'm trying to think, yeah, even the work holding, like a lot of, you know, a lot of the money I spent was fourth axis plus the work holding for the fourth axis. Like all that stuff I would get to potentially avoid on a second machine. So, yeah, it's definitely a, a possibility here. We'll see how many amps I think it, kinda, oh, go ahead. it depends on the kind of work that you want to bring in. Because, I mean, if you're doing stuff that's more cylindrical stock, that's more fourth axis, potentially five axis, then that uh, that Pocket NC Pro machine, whatever it is, would probably be pretty tempting. Yeah, I kind of wish I could justify <laughs> uh, uh, making space for that machine in my garage. Yeah, I think um, I would definitely get a lot of use out of that machine if I had it here. Um, you know, for both work, I can't potentially target for the pocket and C just because it's too much material removal and requires five axis, right? That, so I couldn't necessarily do it on the Neo either. But um, yeah, that one, that's going to be an interesting, interesting machine. I, I can't wait to see like closer to what the production version of that's going to look like and how it performs, but it looks very promising on, on paper and, and the initial cuts I've seen of their development machines. They posted a few videos of that. So it's pretty exciting. <laughs> I mean, they're they're hitting it like on that niche, super good. I mean, there's no nothing else out there in that price range. Yeah. So if there is if there is a market, they own it. Period. Yeah. And, and it, I think they're going to do so good. I think that they're people are going to be shocked at how well they're going to be yeah. doing because there's a big need for it, and that price range is pretty sweet. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of personal, you know, specific to me. But um, the other thing, like the big plus to me, is the spindles the same as I'm running in the Neo. So like the speeds and feeds are going to be very similar on that machine. Um, assuming, yeah, I don't know if the linear and rotary speeds are could match the Neo, but at least my cutting, my, my SFM would be the same. Um, so super, it's going to be pretty easy for me to develop recipes for that machine, 
I think, just because I know how that spindle performs um, and the materials I work with. I don't know how much different we'd be on a completely different motion platform, but uh, I think it would, like, I would gain some overlap of, of experience between those two machines that would be common. Like, you know, there'd be a little bit of an advantage, a starting advantage for me on that machine versus anything else I could buy, right, other than another, another Neo. Have you thought about getting a bigger Neo, like the M8 or something? No, uh, I mean, not here. If I move away, <laughs> where I have more space <laughs> and more power. Um, yeah, so actually, you know, I, that would almost probably never happen um, just because, again, because there's one, there's just one of me, right? I'm going back to that material handling and storage limitations. Um, mm, right, yeah, right. I mean, you know, yeah, just because I could fit a one and a half meter by one meter by one and a half inch aluminum plate on there doesn't mean I could lift it. Right. Get that into my garage. I, I know this struggle all too well right yeah. now. So I, I feel you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I kind of like Neo sized work up to the max. Yes, yeah. Yes. That's actually almost yeah. perfect for me. Um, so yeah, that's why, you know, I did think about it, but I think a second spindle with similar, similar capabilities as far as, you know, basically a second Neo um, or a machine that performs like that would be, you know, without necessarily an increase in in the work size I could take on, I'd still be able to make that uh, work financially and keep right. it, keep it busy. And I'm not there yet. Uh, we'll see where I think 2021 might be different. Um, at some point, I, I'm hoping to carve out some time next year to get back to work on my own products too. That's the other variable there. Like if I need some production capacity, um, that could help. But a second machine might help with that too. But that's a long way away as far as, you know what I'm saying? It's all prototype. The only thing I have in mind right now would be prototyping. I won't know if there's, like, if I would even tackle production here or elsewhere. It depends on how well the stuff sells. So we'll see. But I would love to do it myself, actually. You know, that just, I'd like that full control of the process. I'm kind of like Grimsmo in that sense. Like, I don't want to trust anyone else or have to deal with, like, bringing somebody up to speed on it. Um, I don't know, especially if, you know, my, my logo is going on it. Right. No, I totally understand. I, yeah. I think people expect yeah. that they're just made by me. So it's fun stuff to think about for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I honestly think you're going to reach that sooner than you think. Yeah. And you know, um, so I was listening to, um, I don't remember who was on the podcast, but like, uh, with intolerance and a couple of other pod, like everyone's getting new machines. Like a lot of the garage guys, you know, speedios especially seem to be hot right now. That business model seems to be working, at least now, right? You could be a single, a single solo entrepreneur, right? Um, mm -hmm. Running a shop, finding enough business. Most of these guys are doing a mix of job shop and their own products, so I'm not quite there yet. Um, it's, I don't want to say it's validating, but it's good to see that other people are finding success doing what I'm doing. So kind of, it's encouraging that I'm kind of on the right track. So I don't really know long-term where I want to go. I don't think it's going to be job shop forever. So right now it makes a lot of sense to take as much of that work as I can, but eventually, um, you know, I'll get that, basically the Neo will earn back its keep and I'm gonna have some fun with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'll yeah. at least carve out some fun <laughs> time on it. I, I completely understand your sentiment <laughs> right now. Like I can't wait for the day that the three of us can go back to doing what we love and, uh, <laughs> Yeah. You know, to, to the more specific extent of just doing things we, we want to make. And yeah. Stuff like that. I mean, if you think about it, like, I, mean, I don't want to say I don't love this. I actually love what I'm doing right now. Um, 
when I do finally get to the point where I have, you know, I'm just kind of doing some stuff for fun, it's going to be from a whole different level, right? Because we picked yeah. up so yeah. much experience and, you know, we're at a new level of machine versus what we were running at a year ago. Um, and it's just kind of starting to sink in like what I could do with that machine. So it's like, oh, yeah. yeah, new the limits are much higher, right? So um, yep. the imagination kind of gets fired up when you start thinking about that. Yeah, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be fun, man. And yeah. I'm, I'm, the three of us have been on a pretty crazy ride, so I'm excited <laughs> to see where we end up. Chris, you, you're uh, itching to do product development too yourself, right? Yeah, I, I have so much stuff on my, my list of things I want to make. Uh, and I've just been slowly collecting the skills to be able to make them. So I, I have them on the back burner because of everything else that's happening right now. But I'm kind of in a learning phase, and I call this like my college years. Like I'm getting my quote-unquote machinist degree right now, and I'm just learning from people. I'm getting good. I'm I'm making sure that I understand how to make good parts and things like that. And then so that when I transfer over to making my own products to sell, and I attach my name on it like Eddie, that I'm proud of them, and I hope people will see that I put that same you know intent as Grismo has as well into them, and it will sell in that sense. So. Um, I haven't narrowed it down to like, I'm not doing like knives and I'm not doing EDC. I'm kind of have like this weird variety of things I want to make and like multiple industries. So like, I don't know what the best way to do this. I definitely, it's like, I don't want to get too deep because we can talk a whole hour about this. So basically like I have so many things that I want to do and they're all different types of things. And it kind of reflects my personality because I do a lot of different things in life. Like I like experiencing, you know, I, I do archery, I motorcycle race, I, I musician, like all this stuff. And those things kind of tap into my inner nature of like, well, I want to make things to improve the quality of life for when I do these activities or do these things. So, but how do you do that as a product, right? Can you imagine if Nike sold, not just shoes and clothing, but they did like your car stereo and also like a paintball gun. Like it doesn't work. Right. But <laughs> in my mind, it's like, I can't see myself just making one thing or a one niche thing. I have so many different interests. How do I make this work in a way where I can make a paintball gun or I can make this other thing. And then I can still put this under one brand that people will be like, this guy's insane. Like, what is he even making? He's making like a belt clip here and now he's making a gun. Like, so I don't, I don't know how that's going to work yet. And in my mind, it probably isn't going to work. But the great thing is like, there's a excitement to that, that I don't really care if it's going to work in other people's eyes. And I might just do it. And when you open my page, it's literally going to have like a paintball gun or a knife or whatever. It's going to have all these weird things that don't really make sense together, but I could care less because that's what I want to make. And there's a part of me that's just going in that direction right now that I'm not going to worry about the outcome. I'm just going to make whatever I want to do. And there's, it is what it is. Like you can either find it weird or you can find it cool. But I think if you find it cool, then you're the same person as me. And that's the kind of people that I want to attract. So where where's like kind of the biggest challenge for moving that vision forward? Like for me, it's more finding time to play around in fusion with those ideas than machining time. Like I'm pretty sure I could get machining time whenever I have something solid enough to go like post out and run. But I, I, it's hard to get to that point for me. Um, like even with the tombstones, I have, you know, it's at the 99% complete modeling, but I still have, I, it's hard to shut the ideas off, right? You keep yeah. wanting to tweak it before you commit to like, I, that's probably bad. Like I probably should just go make it and then 
yeah physically no, hold it because, and learn what's wrong with exactly. it and make, make some more right change it exactly it. that yeah. you just gotta do it you just need to just f it like buy the stock have it arrive throw it in there make it hold it in your hand and then think about it but at least you've got one iteration done and then you know improving is is easy after that but, yeah and, and like for me like the the main holdup is or the things i worry about are dfm it's like well you know that's all the more reason to go make one and see where it doesn't work <laughs> you know see, see where the, where the yeah. problems are but but, uh, you know, sometimes like I feel like our brain can get in our way. Yes. And sometimes it's best just to like forget the brain for a second and just power through it. And you'll be surprised that like the things that you'll discover or the things that you thought were going to be a problem are not a problem. And all these other things end up being a problem that you never even thought yeah, about. Exactly. So you're not going to know until you do it. And I think we talked about this before, but basically just get out of your own way and just get to that first step of bringing yourself to that plate or moving you know ordering the stock getting to the machine hitting cycle start worrying about everything else as it comes but don't don't think about all the problems by occur because then you'll, you'll never do anything and yeah you'll be paralyzed i mean I, you know i'm kind of mortified you know the whole reason i bought the neo mainly was to make my own ideas <laughs> i've yet to make really like other, other than my my subplates which i needed on the neo um i haven't really made any of what i would call my stuff on that machine so i, I well, i've got to put a plan together to to yeah. change that. I but okay, I'm I'm in your boat too. Like we have we have a quote unquote machine mortgage, right? We gotta pay the bills. Like I get it. Like we have to sometimes do this other thing before we can do the thing that we want. And honestly, like I just try to squeeze that in whenever I can. Uh, lately it's been kind of harder because we've been so busy. So I haven't been doing a lot of personal stuff, but I'm like you, like I, on the horizon for me is basically, I'm just waiting for that moment where I'm unleashed and I have time and I can just like do all this fun stuff that I've been wanting to do. Um, but you know, the, when you ask like, well, how do you get to that point? Honestly, it's on us. Like yeah, exactly. we have to figure out the time we have to manage our prospects and we have to be efficient with how we do things and we have to if we find it as a priority then we have to make it a priority we have to squeeze it in there somehow yeah. whether that's sleeping less <laughs> or being in front of the machine more like you know that's the sacrifice we got to do but we have to figure out the way to do it and sometimes it's just like i get home and I'm, i need to get the umc running for these things and i have i have a list of jobs i need to finish and sometimes i don't want to spend the brain power to put something of mine in there just yet so that's on me yeah but if i wanted to i could but, you know, we don't because we're tired or, or it's hot or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, I'm at the point where I think the only way I'm going to get my work done is if I just go write a pretend quote and stick it in my job queue. <laughs> and it comes up <laughs> on my next, you know, <laughs> I got to get it in my work queue or it's never going to happen. But, but uh, right. yeah, it's good. I'm glad to know I'm not the only one in that position. And thinking no, no, I, I, exa- I feel the same way, man. Like I, But at the same time, like, let's... It would also feel better if I could get enough jobs out where the machine bills are like we're ahead and then I got like a month or two where we don't need to stress and stuff. And once for us, it's all production. So like at least for that, once I get it running, the machine's making money like and I don't have to be there. So it yeah. makes me feel better. So Winston, like Winston's dragging capsules. I was feeling a lot of a lot of uh, envy there. <laughs> Just watching look at that. looks so cool. But, uh, Did you ever get a chance to run one of those? I have not. <laughs> For the same reason, it's like uh, just haven't had to, any time to stop and kind of play around with fun projects. I thought I would and end up having to take the fourth axis off to go do something else. And uh, actually hasn't been back on the machine since I did the the uh, wire guide work. So you, you you want a big one? You want like a six by six inch one? <laughs> Let's do that. 
and I have the diamond tools now that really do a pretty cool finish on it. So nice. Yeah, that's... I would love to see what a a thirty five thousand RPM ball nose end mill could do. Yeah. PCD on so contour geometry. It won't be a mirror, so it's PCD, but it'll look awesome. It'll look pretty. pretty <laughs> you close. Yeah. PCD <laughs> as though it's it's nothing special, <laughs> but for what compared to what I'm doing, that is a world apart. Yeah, it does give it a pretty nice chrome look for sure. <laughs> I actually love the PCD look more, yeah. to be honest. It looks pretty cool. Yeah, I got to test that in 7075. I love what it did in 6061. Like I said, Mix 6 is it's improvement, it's, but it's not the same as like 6061, and it's not surprising. No. But 7075, I think of, right, should look good. When I think of Mix 6, I just think like flaky layers. Like it's just a little different. It's porous, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, but it's 7000 series aluminum, so I kind of wonder, like I think 7075 would look pretty good. With these PCD tools, because I know like sixty sixty one to seventy seventy five with carbide, the seventy seventy five to me always looks better. Without much effort on finishing, it just comes out. It's it's a brighter looking material in the first place. It just looks good. So I'm hoping to see, hoping to test that out soon. Okay, guys. Well, anything else? No, I, we're, we've blown through our uh, <laughs> allocated time. Yeah, quite a margin. But uh, we'll definitely have to touch base about product development stuff later this year because hopefully all of us will at least find some time to have some fun. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Okay, guys. Well, I will say goodnight. Yeah, it's been great chatting. Great catching up. Yeah, same here, guys. Catch you guys next time. Have a good one.